Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of the show, Colin Morgan, and on today's special episode, we're joined by Dr. Sherry Walling, a clinical psychologist renowned for her work with entrepreneurs. Dr. Walling is the author of the book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together and Touching Two Worlds. Dr. Walling is also the wife of past Built to Sell Radio guest, Rob Walling. In this episode, John will be chatting with Dr. Walling about the emotional ups and downs of selling a business. As we've learned on this show, building and then selling a business can be an emotional process. You're letting go of something you've poured your heart and soul into for years, and that can be difficult to do. Dr. Walling has a wealth of experience helping entrepreneurs navigate the emotional challenges of selling a business. She'll share some of the insights on how to cope with stress and emotional exhaustion. And she'll also offer some practical advice on how to thrive in the years after selling your company. So whether you're contemplating a sale in the next five years or you're already in the process, this episode is for you. Dr. Walling's insights will help you understand the emotional challenges of building and selling a business and how to overcome them. Here are some things you can learn from today's episode. The first being how to distinguish between your identity and your business activity, how to navigate the highs and lows of selling your business, why Dr. Walling recommends unplugging post-sale and her specific advice for the first six months after selling your company, the neurological constraints impacting founders' decision-making abilities when exiting, how to tackle the unique challenges of financial wealth by seeking out and connecting with a like-minded tribe, Dr. Walling's proven strategies to sidestep post-sale regrets and confidently move forward after selling your business, plus so much more. Here to share with you her insights is Dr. Sherry Walling. Enjoy. Dr. Sherry Walling, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. It's great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Uh, you are a obviously a very accomplished person in the space of helping entrepreneurs. Uh, you're the author of The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, which I love the title. And of course, another book, which is also not necessarily directly related, but I think it has a lot of uh, related topics to what we're going to talk about today, which is Touching Two Worlds. Those two books, along with Zen Founder Podcast, I wanted you to come on the show to talk a little bit about how entrepreneurs can navigate this journey from owning their business to a successful and happy life after being the owner of their business. And so that's the the context I was hoping to have you on. So so thank you for doing this. My pleasure. It's a it's a conversation I love having and I think it's really important. So happy to jump into it with you. How did you stumble into this world of entrepreneurship? Because you're a trained doctor, I believe, of psychology, yep. right? Yep. Do I have to call you a shrink or doc from now on? Or can I call <laughs> Sherry's <you> Sherry? great. <laughs> Sherry's <Okay>. great. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So how did you stumble into working specifically with entrepreneurs? You know, I started my career working with people who had what I would call high intensity jobs. So folks in the military, ER docs, people who are first responders. So folks who were exposed to a high level of stress, often life and death kinds of challenges in the context of their work. And we're in need of some mental health care around how do we transition between the intensity of work and having coffee on Tuesday with your significant other or picking your kid up from soccer. And I 
really loved this work because it's people who really pour a lot of themselves into their vocation. So I'm doing this work and then I'm married to my husband, Rob Walling, who is a, a couple times over entrepreneur in the tech space. And, and we've had Rob on the show, yes. by the way, so people will be familiar with the name of Rob Walling. And of course, he has his own podcast, great show, startups for the rest of us. Everybody should listen. But so you're married to Rob. Yeah. So, that's so there's tech entrepreneurs right? in my living room all the time. And these are the people that are our friends and our community. And as I was just getting to know this world of entrepreneurs, really hearing some of the same challenges that they were experiencing that I was seeing in my clinical clients, challenging shifting between work and other parts of life, and real deep sense of identification with their business, which is both good and problematic. So I decided to uh, really transition my focus to be able to be of support to the entrepreneurial community in the context of all of the mental health challenges that go along with going all in on a business. Talk to me about mental health challenges because, you know, I've read some statistics over the years and I, and I, I haven't been able to validate them. So maybe you can do it for me, but I've heard things like, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are, are more likely to struggle with some forms of, of mental illness, uh, more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, uh, more likely to be, of course, Richard Branson is a famous, very obviously famous example of dyslex dyslexia, mm -hmm. which I don't believe is a mental illness per se, but obviously it, it may be a learning disability of some sort. What's your stats? What do your stats say about entrepreneurship and mental health? Just give me the objective numbers. Yeah. So there's I believe to date only one significant study that's looked at mental health in entrepreneurs. And that's by Michael Friedman, who is out of, he has a joint appointment at UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco, wonderful psychiatrist, personal friend. And he's the one who has dived into this question. Um, so the research does suggest that, or his research to be specific, suggests that there are higher levels of bipolar disorder and ADHD in entrepreneurs than there is in the general population. And um, there's some evidence that entrepreneurs in general are a little bit more worried about their mental health than other folks. So hmm. when you ask an entrepreneur, hey, are you worried about yourself? Are you worried about what's going on between your ears? In his research, 72% of them said, yes, I'm a little worried about how it's feeling to be inside of my brain right now. Wow. Which is, again, it's higher than the general population. Does that mean that entrepreneurs are having more, are they more mentally ill? Are they having more mental health issues? I'm, I'm not sure that it does. I think that one of the ways that we break down when we have a conversation about mental health is about norm, normal and divergent. And when we are looking at how brains function, the more neurodivergent a brain is, the more, I don't know, like creative outside of the box, nonlinear, in some ways it's seeing opportunities and has these extra capacities and superpowers that may show up in entrepreneurs more often. Somebody who has uh, a bipolar one or bipolar two way of operating in the world is going to have a more difficult time working in a cubicle at Google, but they might be able to adjust to an entrepreneurial life much more easily. So I think entrepreneurship opens doors and really can validate some level of neurodivergence when we compare it to, you know, our sort of nine to five typical work for somebody else workers. You, 
you just get the gold star for using neurodivergent twice in one episode. It's the first time I've ever <laughs> heard neurodivergent in like 350 episodes. So you, my dear, get the gold star. Awesome. So I want to go further on this because the other thing I've heard, and again, I don't have any hard data and I'm hoping you might, is that entrepreneurs have a proclivity towards substance abuse. That the same neurodivergence, now I'm using it, meaning their brain just can't shut off, means that they turn to self-medicate to try to get their brain to shut off. Have you seen anything uh, to suggest that that's more than just the subjective sort of observation on my behalf? Yeah, I think um, Freeman's research does suggest that, that entrepreneurs are more likely to have a history of substance abuse. And I think in some ways, that's where we're getting into personality type. The kind of folks who are all in on something, they can, you know, I don't normally say this, but I think one way of thinking about successful entrepreneurship is a little bit like you have an addiction to making this business successful, which is really relevant for our conversation around exiting because what happens when you can't be addicted to that thing anymore? Mm -hmm. And so that ability to be hyper-focused or to have a brain that is organized around the satisfaction, the dopamine hits that come from little successes in a business is not that different from a brain that's really satisfied by that next shot or that next hit or that next sort of chemical infusion of experience. Entrepreneurs also are really high on something called openness to new experience. They, they're, they're longing for and looking for novelty. And so that's a little bit of what could be a sort of underpinning of addiction, healthy addiction and less healthy addiction. Isn't that interesting? So just the, the openness, hey, try this. Feels great. It, it, that's often. I'll try that. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll try that. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Interesting. So you've got a a kind of powder keg when it comes to going to exit a business because you've got a an entrepreneur who already has to some extent a proclivity towards some form of mental uh, health issues. You've got a very high impact role, which is wrapped up in many cases, their identity is deeply wrapped up in, in their role. And then they go to exit their company. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur who is contemplating exiting their business, selling their company? I think the best, one of the best analogies that I can think about for the kind of psychological process of an exit feels really relevant to me because I just had a kid graduate from high school. But it's a very similar sort of process in launching a child. So someone that you've spent 18 years developing, investing hours and hours and hours and hours into the development of this human and the, the relative emptiness that I think a lot of people feel after that person has left the nest. So that can be a very positive thing for all involved, or it can be a very very troubled, difficult, grief-oriented time for all involved. And so the same is true in the process of preparing to sell a business is all of the psychological and emotional and identity gymnastics that go into a positive exit require a lot of work and attention. And I think that's the probably the first thing that I would say to folks who are thinking about selling is to just give yourself time and space for the inner work that needs to happen in order for that to be you know, a positive completion of a story and a launching point to a new story rather than this like 
terrible ending where you feel unsatisfied and alone. And What's the work we need to do? You mentioned give yourself the time and energy and space to do the work. What's the work? I think the work is a lot of personal contemplation. Who am I without this business? That's a hard question. So having spaces where you're thinking about it, having spaces where you're talking about it, and how can I be of service to this business as it's growing beyond me or as it's having an outcome without me and detach in a way that's helpful? And then how do I rebuild myself after having spent so much time creating this business? The sort of what's next question most entrepreneurs run into headlong too quickly. They don't give themselves the time and space to really consider what they want or what they need their lives to be after the ending of the business. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We have this tool called Prescore and 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 we get people to write down all of their push factors, the things that are frustrating them about their company, tax, payroll, mm-hmm. employees, whatever. And then what are their pull factors? In other words, what do you want to go do? What, how do you plan to reinvent yourself? What are the, the things that you want to accomplish? And I think people really struggle with the pull factors. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on how to go from the superficial to the more meaningful. So for example, we would see stuff like, well, I want to travel is a pull factor. And, and unfortunately, that doesn't give people a lot of motivation. So if you're struggling with your pull factors, what you want your identity to be, what you want your life to be in the future, can you guide us through any, like a, a process through which we might get more specific around pull factors? Yeah, I think the specificity is very helpful. One of the things that I recommend, though, is some space. So I've try to help support entrepreneurs to not jump into something new or even do a big detailed plan for the first six months after they exit. But perhaps in that six months, you develop a little bit of a syllabus, a little bit of a learning plan for yourself. Maybe some books you'd like to read, maybe a gardening project you'd like to do, maybe a new skill you'd like to learn with your hands, something that's super different than the business that you've been doing. So having some structure and meaningful infusion or meaningful planning around your time is really important, but not too much. Don't pour the cement yet for the new foundation. Like, wait for the concrete. Let things be a little bit fluid, but still some structure. So, go ahead. Give us the reading list. What are the top three books every entrepreneur should read in the first six months after leaving their company <laughs> between gardening sessions and contemplative walks in the beach? What What are the three books they need to read? Actually, I usually re- request that they read things that have nothing to do with business. <laughs> Fiction, poetry. Have you read Harry Potter? I mean, sort of the things that weren't happening when they were doing their other work. What are the things that we hear a lot? In terms of regret, and I think it eats away at entrepreneurs at a very sort of uh, challenging level, and, and I think it undermines their mental health, is they will sell their company in, an, in what they believe to be a fair and good price for their company. And there'll be a, a wonderful moment of, of euphoria, followed by kind of a leveling out. And then oftentimes a year, two years, three years down the road, Something happens where they start to question, 
did they leave money on the table? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where you only have some giant economic event, like selling a home, selling a business a couple of times in your life. And yep. if you're lucky and the, there is this natural inclination to want to look backwards and, and once you've had some distance from it, say, Ooh, maybe I could have done better. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur who's sitting on the rocking chair, contemplating the world and starts to feel like maybe they left money on the table? Yeah. I'd be curious about the money story that drives that. And I think there's a conversation to be had about how does it serve you, right? How does this question serve you? What's the, what's the question under the question that you're trying to answer? Do I have enough? Do I have enough economic stability? Is there enough in my bank account? Or is it that I want to get back in the game? I I want that negotiation. I want to play chess again. I think sometimes there's a little bit of a desire to rethink an exit strategy because it's just the last big negotiation that you did. And if you are missing that part of the, the sort of chess game of entrepreneurship, of running a business, that's an important thing to consider. Like what is in you that's activated about this money question? Sometimes it's the money, but often it's not. Often it's a deeper desire to use a part of yourself that's dormant on the rocking chair right now. I agree. I also sometimes wonder if there's a sense of feeling duped. Like I got taken advantage of. I got Mm -hmm. taken. And nobody likes that feeling of being kind of ripped off. Sure. And it can be, I think, pretty cancerous if you're if you're yeah. walking around life feeling like some somebody ripped you off. That can be a very negative emotion, no? Oh, it's totally, it's absolutely toxic, especially about something that happened in the past of, over which you can do nothing about. The bottom line is that the negotiation happened based on all of the variables and the factors that were known at the time. And so fast forwarding two years, three years, maybe the landscape looks very different. Maybe the company looks very different. But you're going backwards and rehashing and uh, sort of ruminating and that sense of sort of poisonous, I, I got duped, I got cheated, I should have done better, I could have done better. As much as those kinds of thoughts are very alluring, we get stuck in them because they are about safety. And so our brains are really oriented to keep thinking about them over and over. They almost always do nothing to serve us. and so. You know, a helpful counterbalance is a gratitude practice. It is a sense of like, here's all the things that went right. <laughs> here's all the things that I've gained in my life over this exit. And so maybe I left two million, three million. Maybe it could have been better, better or different. But generally speaking, most people who are having this conversation with themselves on the rocking chair have done okay enough. Well said. What's your experience working with entrepreneurs who have? come to own their business in different ways. And I'm thinking there are, in, in my mind, sort of three ways that entrepreneurs, you know, become entrepreneurs. They, they're either founders of a business. They started mm-hmm. it, in, you know, the classic story of, you know, in their garage or whatever. They may have inherited it. And in the second case, I'm thinking of uh, both inherited in a familiar, like passing it from one generation to the next, 
as well as a management buyout where a, a right. second generation of managers takes over from a first generation. Um, or they may have purchased it. And in the latter case, we're seeing more of that as the baby boomers retire and the younger mm -hmm. generation comes and buys those companies. We're seeing people that are running companies they didn't start. And I'd just be curious from your perspective, what impact how they came about owning their company has on some of the issues we've been talking about today, how you might sell it, how you might think about running it, et cetera. Yeah. There's an interesting study that uh, used fMRI uh, imaging, so brain scan imagery, and asked entrepreneurs, founders specifically, so people who started the company, to uh, look at an image of their company, like their logo or something like that. And then looked at the brain structures that were highly activated during that activity and compared that activity or compared that activation to the brains of parents looking at their children. <laughs> and probably no surprise to you and others who are listening. <laughs> very, very similar neurological activation in, in founders as they looked at images of their company. That's crazy. So there is really? this... Yes. You hear about that, but I've never heard it actually yeah, yeah. measured objectively. I'll send you the That's link to crazy. the study. The parts of the brain that were activated were uh, the reward center. So essentially the the neurological pathways consistent with love hmm. and sort of this adoring adoration. And then the other part of the brain that was unusual was a suppression in the sort of critical reflection. So this is where, you know, we all think we have the most beautiful baby. Founders all think they have the most beautiful company. So that's where I think there is some uniqueness in the experience of a founder who is who has birthed the company, mm -hmm. where they may be less able to objectively evaluate their company. They may be just so sort of deeply attached neurologically that it makes the sale process a little bit different than it would be for someone who maybe purchased the company, has already gone through due diligence, has sort of done the objective negotiation of a deal around this company that feels very different than I made this. Hmm. So. Sort of, I think in the case of a founder in particular, the more um, emotional attachment, the more identity overlap with the company, the, the more important the team around you is in terms of those advisors, the brokers, the lawyers, the helpers, the people who are able to be your objective backstop. That's, of course, important in all of these deals, but particularly for that founder, they're going to have a little bit of a different neurological reality than other yeah. kinds of owners. What about people who inherit their company? In this case, I would like to drill into family transition. So mm. I've seen a couple things happen here. One, uh, you know, little Jane or Johnny inherits the company and is bound and determined to do better than their parents. They're just so eager for validation and <laughs> that, I deserve this. And I, you know, I, you know, I, I wasn't just the lucky sperm. I actually, you know, deserve to be here. So there's a sense of, of, uh, they've got something to prove. They've got some, thank you for filling yes. the words in, uh, for me, something to prove. Um, and then there's the other piece that I've also seen among second generation and third generation owners is they have this sort of conflict with being the, 
the guardian of the business as opposed to its owner. You know, this, you know, the old fancy watch commercial, I think Philip Patak or one of them is, it's like, you never really own a Philip Patak watch. You just care for it until you get to pass it down to the next <laughs> just, generation. You're just the steward. You're just, thank you. You're, you're great at filling in my, <laughs> my words today. You're just the steward of this business. And, and I'd be curious to know in both cases, how you would advise an entrepreneur in, in, in both of those cases. First, let's start with this idea of like wanting to prove themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think whatever the narrative is, it's really important to get as clear as you can about what that complicated narrative is. And that's very true in all of these inherited businesses. Your relationship with your parent, which is complicated for all of us on a good day, is now overlaid with your vocation and your relationship with your business, which is also almost always a bit complicated. And so for folks who are in that situation of having inherited a business, doing the work ideally before you get to this sale conversation about what what the inherited story is. So you know if you're someone who's like, I got something to prove. I just got to live up to this mantle. Or you know if you're someone who is, oh, I'm just sort of tending this for mom and dad. Or there are also cases where people are kind of angry at their parent. Maybe they're sort of resentful that they could dump this with this business. Maybe they wanted to go and like join the Peace Corps, but no, here they are selling tires. Like it's just not the dream that they had for themselves. So that also plays in when there's some sort of uh, lingering resentment. So I mean, not to not to push or, or plug my my business, but I do think like. Um, Doing the the deeper work to work with a psychologist, a mental health professional, a coach. I know you have some processes in place that help people get at this so that they can hold the story alongside the business negotiation, right? We want to kind of have our eyeballs on all of the variables that are shaping how we enter a sale. It doesn't mean we can solve them all, but we want to know what they are and where they may derail us or shape our thinking or influence the kind of a deal that we are willing to make. How would you advise an entrepreneur who's feeling guilty about selling a company they've inherited? Mm-hmm. So imagine imagine a 50-year-old a person listening to this podcast who's inherited a business that's now worth $30 million. They grew up modestly. They grew up in a middle-class house. Their parents sacrificed, and my, their parents are now well into their eighties and living a, uh, you know, a modest life. Mm-hmm. But here they are sitting as the founder, excuse me, as the owner, second generation of a business that has a market value, a massive market value, thirty million dollars, like enough to live generations from now. Yeah. And they feel conflicted. They feel guilty. They're like, I, I don't deserve this. I, I inherited mm. this thing. I would not have this if it weren't for my parents. Mm. And, and here I am just standing to gain such a massive amount of money. What, what, would, you, yeah. what would you advise them to, to do or think through? Oh, I'd love to explore with them how to really honor the gift that was given. Like the guilt diminishes the gift. The opportunity was offered by these parents who worked so hard. And it's possible that this is exactly what they had in mind, (laughs) that the business would create generational wealth for their family for years to come. And so to be able to work past the guilt, release the guilt, 
and say, this is the best story ever. And it's also possible that you are not the best steward of that company. So with a very mindful exit, thinking through how this company can be transferred to hands that maybe have more experience or a better position to help grow the company to even you know greater heights. It's possible that this exit can be wonderful for the family story as well as for the business story, and both are served. And I got to believe that that was the intention of Ma and Pa back in the day, is both to create wealth and to build something. Yeah, yeah. I think that's... I think that's probably true. Unfortunately, I've seen examples where mom and dad uh, feel a bit resentful of mm. their child and and wish you know the child may have grown the business from you know whatever five hundred grand in sales to fifty million in sales. Like so, so the lion's share of the benefit should accrue to the second generation because they're the ones who've made such incredible progress. Yet sure. the parents can sometimes feel resentful yeah. that. Well, they, you know, they, they would never had it ever work for us. But again, that's, that's, that's probably more, it's your point, a, a little less common than it would be that, that the parents are putting their kids in a spot that they hope will be good for them. And it is painful when other people don't feel good about our successes, especially people who are close to us, like, like parents or family members who may have trouble really celebrating a positive outcome. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, surprisingly common experience with exits, whether it's parents or other people in your life who, you know, whether they're jealous or resentful or they have their own story, they don't think that you should have it and they will diminish your joy. They'll take as much of the 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 pleasure out of the experience as, as you will let them. Um, and so that's where it's part of our work as mature adults to like not feel responsible for other people's feelings. And how do you do that? Especially if it's your parents who... I mean, man, that's a complicated labyrinth of connections. Like if you did get a, a, like a, if you were advising an entrepreneur who was just other people were resentful of their success, their financial success, their life success, whatever, what, what would you sort of coach them to think about or do to get over that? I think there's a, there's first an internal questioning. It's like, Am I behaving in an ethical way? Do I feel clear about my boundaries? You know, would it be helpful or does it feel ethical, reasonable to pass some of this wealth back on to the parents? Or, you know, what's the what's the quote unquote right decision related to or based in my moral code? What seems reasonable? Is there something that I can do meaningfully to change this dynamic? Sometimes there is. Often there's not. And then I think another thing that's important is for folks at that level of success to find their tribe. Because I, I think as you're having a successful exit, the amount of people who have that experience becomes in, you know, increasingly small. You're not likely to run into another uh, multi-million exit founder at um, you know, your kid's friend's birthday party. Like, yeah, yeah. So finding your tribe of people who've had similar experiences um, I think is really helpful in balancing some of these questions because it can feel so more. alone yeah. and so isolating. That's such an interesting insight because I think sometimes uh, founders, you know, who go through a sale, you know, some buy the big house and the big car, others don't. They they keep the same tribe they had before to their, you know, and rightly so. These are friends and deep, you know, family and so forth. But if but if they have this sort of giant secret in the back of their head, which is that they've had this huge liquidity event, 
it can feel very disorienting because you're you're you have this sort of big difference between you and the you know your immediate the world around friends you. that you've had for ages. Yeah. And it can feel very, I think, disorienting. And I think it's helpful to go back and forth, right? To to keep those relationships with oh, the for people sure. that you've known since T-ball days or yeah. whoever your tribe is. This is this is a thing that's happened in your life, but it doesn't need to redefine you and probably it shouldn't redefine you. But also it is enough of a sort of exemplary experience that you might need some new tribe. You might need some additional people in your life who have a sense of that experience, who are even sort of working through or thinking about how to how to wield that kind of wealth. I mean, most of us don't know how to do that. So just the financial implications of having that much money, you need a new kind of crew of people who are thoughtful about it. Yeah, I'm really glad you bring up you know, your identity or an entrepreneur's identity. And one of the questions on, on Prescore is, which of the following would you be most likely to uh, agree with? I am a business owner or I own a business. Mm -hmm. And as you might imagine, the reason Great why I'm asking question. that question is for folks who say, I am a business owner, it's like, I am a basketball player. Well, you're a basketball player right up until the time you retire from sure. professional basketball and then you're lost because your entire identity is wrapped up in your self-definition of what you are is the same as what you do. I mean, do you think like, maybe just kind of riff with me on that question. Yeah. Identity and versus activity, right? I do a thing, I am a thing. And the distinction there is really important because we do lots of different things, right? 15 different things I do in a day. <laughs> I go for a walk, I feed my dog, I feed my kids, like whatever. Those are the activities of my life. And they're important. They're how I spend my time. They're how I spend a lot of my life. But it's not that same core identity. We can only have so many identities. That's a much more limited kind of factor. What if the surname of the entrepreneur is in their company name? Ooh. So it's like, you know, Johnson and Sons moving and Johnson retires, sells his company. Uh, and yet he sees his trucks driving around the neighborhood every second day. What advice would you give Johnson? Ooh, I hope that's just a little infusion of like, yeah, I did that. Hmm. Look at that. Look at the thing that outlives me. Look at the thing that's still going on, even though I don't have to participate anymore. I would hope that there's a little sense of, of pride and of, of having built a legacy. It's like watching your kid. You, you, you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of parallels between giving birth and then you know, having a child leave the home to exiting a company. And it's like, you know, when, when you watch your kid do something, you know, polite to a stranger opens the door for somebody, does something without you sure. prompting, you know, for me, it just brings, you know, enormous pride. I didn't have yeah. to tell him to do that. He, he just did it. And that's, that, that's, uh, doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it's those <laughs> moments of sheer, you know, unadulterated pride. So that's an interesting reframing for, for a lot of folks, for sure. One of the big regrets that we hear entrepreneurs have around exit is how their employees were treated in the process. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you know this from some of your work and a lot of your work with your clinical patients and, and, and maybe some, some work with just friends and, and, and others. When you sell a company, 
every outside advisor will give you a couple of pieces of sort of ironclad advice. One of them is never tell your employees because the moment you tell your employees, you undermine your negotiating leverage. They start looking for a job. The market finds out. Chaos ensues. Sometimes the acquirer looks to do an end run and talk to the employee. I mean, it's just like there's a whole litany of things that can go wrong when you tell your employees. Yet, for an entrepreneur going through a sale, it can be like the cheating spouse who's walking around the house yeah. with this giant secret. Yep. And, and they find it incredibly difficult to live yeah. those two lives in parallel, to have this giant secret. Like I'm, I'm about to sell my company. And at yeah. the same time, look squarely in the eyes of their employees and and pretend like nothing's changed or nothing. Right. Make a on. great plan for Q3. Yeah, like go get him, Tiger. Like it's yeah. a really, really difficult um tightrope to walk. What advice yeah. would you have for an entrepreneur who feels desperate to tell his or her employees? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you draw attention to this because I think it is one of those things that really is kind of like a gut check for people. Um, and you're right. It, there's this wisdom that's relevant to the process of a sale that is a departure from how most people have led up until that point. So even the negotiation around a sale is the beginning of the end. It's the transition that you're making from leading the team to now ushering the business through a sale. Your job is different. And so I think there is an, it's important to sort of name that and to name like, my allegiance is no longer to the team in the same way that it was. It's now to the company having a productive exit and to begin to grieve the loss of that and to identify previously our work together was the foundation of trust and of sort of shared collaborative vision. But now my vision is shifting and my team has to carry on while I'm now moving in a different direction. And the trajectory of that will carry through. Like that's the ultimate departure of the leader from the business if the team stays intact. there's So this is the beginning of the end. And noticing that, noting it, feeling it, holding that carefully, I think is, is hard to do, but important to do. I'm glad you brought up grief because again, I've heard for a lot of entrepreneurs selling a company, there is a period of grieving. As ironic yeah. as that is, you have this incredible financial result, but there's this period of of grieving. Um, and you've written extensively on this topic, Touching Two Worlds is about dealing with grief. Maybe if you don't mind, and I realize sure. this might be a sensitive topic, but would you be willing to share sort of why you wrote Touching Two Worlds and sort of what it's about and, and some things that that folks can maybe take away from that construct that you write about? Yeah. So um, the book was really born from my experience of having significant loss uh, in my life. I lost my dad to cancer and my brother to suicide in a very tight time period and within six months of each other. And so while I'm growing my business and launching my other book and sort of doing all of these things in my professional career, I'm also in the middle of very significant grief and loss. So Touching Two Worlds is sort of like the response to how you live as someone who is experiencing loss and present to it, not running from it, but also live in the world of kind of joy and continuing to build and continuing to raise kids and like make things happen in the world. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs and high performers sort of struggle to enter grief because it feels so opposite to the energy of building. But I think 
when we don't grieve, when we don't acknowledge the emotional implications that come along with loss, uh, we we basically wall off little corners of ourselves inside and we fail to either learn from those experiences, but to be present to sort of our full, the full range of our humanness. So in the example of somebody who's leaving a company, even though it's a wonderful outcome, hopefully, there's still losses involved. You're not going to go to that office anymore. You're not going to lead that team in that way. You're not going to be identified with that brand in the same way. And giving the emotional space to say, this used to be part of my life and it's not anymore. And I have some feelings about that. Very human, very reasonable, psychologically probably very important to do. And I think that my work with Touching Two Worlds is very much about how, how can we acknowledge that both can be true? Hmm. Something great can be happening, and there's also some grief involved. Because the tendency is to is to block out the grief and just you know proceed as though nothing's happening because there's all these wonderful things and you're expected to lead and and so forth. Yeah, people want it to be one thing, right? Having a great successful exit, walking away with thirty million dollars, yay, hooray! It should all be sunshine and roses, and of course, it's not. There's losses that are involved. Man, I could uh, I could talk to you for hours. I think we're kindred spirits. There's tons of stuff we could do, but your time is precious. Uh, I'm so grateful for you sharing some of your wisdom with us. Uh, where can people, if they wanted to reach out, um, I, I'll, I'll link up the books and the pod in the show notes. Is there a way for folks to reach out to you like LinkedIn or Twitter? Or what's your preferred sort of? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Probably the most direct route is the contact sheet on either of my websites on zenfounder.com or sherrywalling.com. Go straight to my inbox. So it's the, the best, most direct way to find me. Zenfounder.com. The books are The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. I love the title. And Touching Two Worlds. The podcast is called Zenfounder. Dr. Sherry Wallen, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks so much, John. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Dr. Walling. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure you subscribe to wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, then I would encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review. Quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel by heading over to YouTube and typing in at Built to Sell Radio. There you'll have the chance to watch this full interview between John and Sherry. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, I would encourage you to head over to builttosell.com. Lastly, if you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week. 